0: This episode is part of a long series exploring how communism in Russia impacted the American Christian Church. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of Season 3 for more context. If you're out in the wilderness, camping, roasting marshmallows, you might think that advertising is not present. Like, it has no influence on you out there in the woods. You can sit around a fire, tell stories, and crawl into your sleeping bag knowing that you are out of reach of the Don Drapers of the world. Right? Wait, no, I, I think we skipped a step. Uh, sit around the fire, tell stories, sleeping bag... Oh! Nope. That's right! You can't just leave a fire burning overnight it could start a forest fire all of us grew up hearing that only we could prevent forest fires and
1: who told us
0: that Smokey the bear
1: one of the things that's interesting about Smokey First is there's no the in his name. Oh, I'm sorry. Smokey Bear. Although people will still fight, you know, about no, and they send me stuff, but it was, the original name is just Smokey Bear.
0: This is Wendy Melillo. She is a journalism professor at American University and the author of the book, How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America. Smokey Bear's
1: origin story begins
0: with World War II.
1: What this campaign was all about, originally, before the animated, beloved character of a bear that everyone has come to know and love, this campaign had to do with protecting our lumber supply. The world was at
0: war. The United States needed wood to build ships, gunstocks, and
1: buildings. And there was an incident off the California coast where a Japanese submarine fired upon the mainland of America.
0: On February 23, 1942, a Japanese submarine emerged from the water just seven miles north of Santa Barbara, California firing almost two dozen five-inch shells. It was the first time the U.S. mainland was attacked during World War II. The event caused great concern, even though it only destroyed a shed. Could the Japanese use technology to burn down our forests? That would have been terrible for the war effort, but forget about the Japanese for a moment. Were Americans here in the States hurting the war effort too? The previous year, the Forest Service said that there were 208,000 forest fires in the U.S., nine out of ten of which were caused by humans. That is no joke. Americans were pretty irresponsible with their fire. We had to
1: curb the destruction of this precious resource. The campaign was created for that reason. But if you look at some of the original advertising, the posters were quite frightening. They had, you know, Hitler, they had um, Tojo of Japan, and they were like menacing um, faces of those two, you know, against the backdrop of a forest on fire. This was two years before Smokey entered the picture. And it had slogans like, careless matches aid the Axis. Or you'd have, our carelessness their secret weapon? The implication was that carelessness was treason.
0: The problem was, this stuff was scary to children.
1: Like, they really are scary. Like, straight up creepy. So the U.S. Forest Service... Decided to come up with a more appealing character. And animals were doing well at the time, because you've got the Disney you know, movie out at the time. This was the era of Fantasia and and Dumbo and
0: and little Bambi and his mom. (laughs) No, I'm, I'm cool, I'm good, I can do it. So the ad council came up with a bear.
1: Smokey remains the longest running public service advertising campaign in American history.
0: And everyone loves Smokey, right? I live in Wyoming and we're surrounded by national forest. I see Smokey all the time. He's
1: the best. Right? An academic researcher did this study of how people shoot bullet holes at, pic- at posters, Smokey posters that you were just, you know, talking to me about in Wyoming. You steal Yes, well, people were shooting bullet holes. Well, why? You know, isn't Smokey beloved by everyone? Um, no. Because
0: there are people who like to burn fields for crops. And opinions about forest fires have shifted over the years as people see that they are part of the natural process of a forest, clearing old growth, making way for new plants and revitalizing habitats. Parks and forests in the U.S. actually start fires on purpose for that reason. Still, you should definitely put out your campfires.
1: The U.S. Forest Service also represents a lot of negative things to people who live off the land and who owns the land, whose land is it, and who took it way back when, right? (laughs) All of those arguments that we have about history. This is the only campaign that I can find, the only advertising campaign, that is actually protected by an act of Congress. It's the Smokey Bear Act of 1952. And this prevents anyone from not only using the name Smoky Bear, I mean, not only the image of Smokey, to try to profit off of, to sell merchandise, etc., but the Forest Service controls the words. Anything related to Smokey, you have to get U.S. Forest Service permission to use, even if it's for educational purposes.
0: Okay, for those of you who were going to run out and sew his face on the socks and hats for your Etsy account... You may want to put a pin in that. It turns out that advertising is all around us, even out in the forest. We look at something like Smokey Bear and think it's pretty cut and dry. He's there to stop us from burning down the woods. But who is behind these ads? Even ads that we might agree with and support. On this episode, a bear in a forest ranger's hat, radio stations in distant lands, communists, Christian America, and the CIA, and the organization that tied them all together, the Ad Council. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin. And this is Truce. Okay, so the Ad Council. Maybe you've seen their logo on the bottom corner of a billboard or a television commercial.
1: But who is the Ad Council? Let's go back to Wendy. For a long time, nearly a decade, I was the uh, Washington, D.C. bureau chief for Adweek magazine. And one of my beats and responsibilities was the Ad Council. And what was so fascinating about the Ad Council was this was the do good part of advertising. This was all about selling good, if you will, to the American people. Smokey Bear, McGruff, the crying Indian commercial that encouraged us all to recycle That is all the ad council. And this was so different from selling soap or toothpaste or laundry detergent, right? And I was fascinated by the message development and the strategy behind coming up with the slogans and the visuals that actually persuaded people to do something particularly changing behavior, which is not an easy thing to do. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. As we
0: talked about with the Pledge of Allegiance, societies have to encourage their populations to act in a certain way.
1: When I really started digging into the primary documents, I realized, okay, this organization had a very strong, um, deep-rooted background in propaganda on behalf of the federal government. The Ad Council
0: is not a branch of the U.S. government, but it sometimes is funded by the government. That line is going to get murky here soon, but I wanted to get that out there early on. To understand the creation of the Ad Council, you have to know what advertising was like in the early 1900s.
1: You know, the history of advertising involves people who were obviously trying to sell products, but because it wasn't regulated really up until about the late 1930s, people took liberties, right? And so you had a lot of basically false, deceptive, and misleading advertising. And understandably, there was a rise in the consumer advocacy movement that pushed back against these kinds of false claims. Nobody was regulating this stuff
0: which is especially important to note when it comes to foods and drugs. The American people really should know what is actually in their food. You shouldn't have to guess if there's formaldehyde or plaster dust in your milk, or roll the dice about whether or not a medicine can really do what it claims. The Franklin Roosevelt administration created the Federal Trade Commission as part of the New Deal,
1: and it had its regulatory eye
0: on the advertising world.
1: And going beyond the false, deceptive, and misleading, you got into what we call the puffery aspect. So that that's when you inflate the attributes of a product. Buy this deodorant, you will be healthier, happier, sexier, etc. You know, or you know, just fill in the blank with any perfume or any soap or <laughs> you know, any product.
0: While consumer groups and the FTC did away with false, deceptive, and misleading ads. They haven't done away with puffery. You still see it today.
1: And the last time that, you know, our government has seriously looked at regulating advertising, you know, goes back to the passage of the Wheeler-Leah Act of 1938.
0: The advertising world decided to get out ahead of this regulation. Demonstrate that they weren't so bad after all. So they created a nonprofit organization to help the government
1: do a little rebranding of
0: themselves.
1: You know, advertisers could say to the federal government, look, let us help you. Let's use our communication um, and our advertising to help you with your policies directed toward the American people. That sounds heinous, but
0: it could be something as simple as encouraging people to buy war bonds, plant victory gardens, or don't burn down the forest. As it did during the First World War, in the time of the Cold War, it could identify the enemy.
1: And if you look at ad council campaigns, particularly starting in the 1950s as the Cold War starts to get underway, you start to see the values of, you know, the people who were involved in the ad council playing out in the campaigns.
0: They had already used the forest fire ads to identify Hitler and Tojo, the Prime Minister of Japan during World War II, as enemies of the country. During the Cold War, the Ad Council would go to battle with communism and the Soviet Union. The Crusade for Freedom campaign began in 1950. Not just targeting Americans, but also those in the Soviet Union itself. Part of
1: it was a program called Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Europe became very important at the time for United States foreign policy, you know, to try to get people, you know, in countries behind the Iron Curtain to rise up against the, you know, the communist influence that they were experiencing in their countries. Here is how it worked. Set up radio stations. You're listening to Radio Free Europe.
0: In a friendly nation that can beam the signal into a communist country.
1: Meaning we can send messages into countries that normally shut out Western media. And anyone with a radio can hear it for free.
0: And there's not much a communist nation could do about it. We've done this a lot in the U.S. Some Christian ministries do it even today to broadcast evangelistic messages into places that are hostile to the gospel. The Ad Council was part of setting up, promoting, and fundraising
1: for Radio Free Europe. And what people didn't know is this campaign was secretly funded by our CIA.
0: Now that records have been opened up, we know that the U.S. was involved in spreading American culture into the Soviet Union. The controversial American opera Porgy and Bess, which featured a largely black cast, was sent in to counteract Russian propaganda about the treatment of African Americans. Which is weird because Porgy and Bess is not a great depiction of black people. Rock bands like Bon Jovi and the Scorpions did a concert in Moscow. All to spread American culture. In 1951, when a Czech train carrying passengers escaped the Soviet Union by fleeing to West Germany, the Crusade for Freedom campaign sent 2,000 balloons carrying 2 million leaflets about the events into Prague. They took stories of people escaping the Soviet Union and sprinkled them behind the Iron Curtain to encourage more. Radio Free Europe was like that, but in people's homes, dropping messages into their living rooms, encouraging them to rise up against their communist overlords. 29 stations in 16 languages, supposedly funded by a nonprofit, but
1: really by the CIA. And so the messages were, you know, messages of liberty, free yourselves. I mean, you know, It was basically talking about how wonderful democracy is and how wonderful capitalism is, etc.
0: Radio Free Europe was run by the National Committee for a Free Europe. Its members, it will come as no surprise to you, are some of the usual suspects we've been talking about this season. The president of General Motors, Dwight Eisenhower, and Cecil B. DeMille. I guess you could expect actions like this in an ideological war. Sending pro-capitalism messages into the enemy camp. Don't let the narrative be that simple. The campaign also targeted people living in the U.S.
1: And so if you look at the crusade for freedom advertising, you know, one headline would be, it's kind of like a 1950s housewife saying, you mean I could do something about communism? You know, well, give money, give money to to Radio Free Europe. Well, the amount of money raised by people like, you know, mailing in dollars was actually very, very little. This was actually a front to help our foreign policy in these countries. The
0: goal of ads like this one wasn't really to raise money. That was secondary. The objective was to change the minds of Americans when it came to things like communism.
1: Which is not supposed to happen legally because the United States government is not supposed to direct propaganda messages like this toward Americans. And so this became quite controversial. It was, you know, the media got onto it back in the 1960s, the late 1960s, that this had been secretly funded by um, the CIA. But a lot of people don't, you know, realize how this stuff can affect us. The
0: text of the ad claims that $1 could buy 100 words of truth beamed right through the Iron Curtain, give hope and courage to the 70 million enslaved people behind the Iron Curtain, truth to stiffen their will to resist, to help keep the Kremlin off balance in its own home grounds. Enslaved people behind the Iron Curtain? That's quite a claim. While Radio Free Europe did send messages behind the Iron Curtain, the real objective was to turn American attitudes against communism in support of U.S. policies.
1: And when you trace the primary documents, which are like the internal memos of the Ad Council, think of, and I don't know how much you know about um, advertising, but a famous advertising agency to this day is Chicago-based Leo Burnett, right? Well, Leo Burnett was a real guy, and he wrote reports um, in the 1950s talking about the real concern about communism and that the Ad Council needed to be directing its efforts toward promoting the democratic way of life under a capitalistic system. We had to do something to fight the propaganda because the Soviet Union was doing the same thing,
0: right? You can listen to our episode titled Godless Utopia
1: to learn more about Soviet propaganda. The Crusade for Freedom campaign, which kicks off the decade in the 1950s, is followed by a series of ad council campaigns like the miracle of America, the people's capitalism, you can kind of see in the names traveling exhibits that promoted the American way of life in other countries.
0: That may seem kind of basic, but let that sink in. Because after the break, we're going to talk about how the Ad Council got involved in promoting religion. In the US, it can seem confusing how capitalism and religion got linked in our minds. Advertising campaigns like these played a key role. But those were not the only messages for us. This goes deeper than radio stations and crime-fighting dogs. Their third campaign is quite startling for us today. Remember what we've been talking about for the last few months. Communism wasn't seen just as an economic problem, but as a religious one. Because communism, according to Karl Marx, is inherently atheistic if the United States and the Ad Council were really going to fight the Soviet Union, they would do it with religion. I'll tell you how after these messages.
2: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: The Ad Council's third campaign was called Religion in American Life. Wendy doesn't talk about this in her book, so we'll come back to her a little later. The stated purpose of the Religion in American Life campaign was, and this is a quote, to accent the importance of all religious institutions as the basis of American life, and to urge all Americans to attend the church or synagogue of their choice. For example, there was a print ad featuring a group of kids singing.
2: The text below it says, Democracy starts here. The way I see it, when you're a father, you're automatically a founding father, too. It's up to you to found America in the heart and mind of every young citizen you add to the census. Find yourself through faith. Come to church this week.
0: I know that went by fast, but what is this ad equating? I'll play it again so you can count the buzzwords.
2: Democracy starts here. The way I see it, when you're a father you're automatically a founding father, too. It's up to you to found America in the heart and mind of every young citizen you add to the census. Find yourself through faith. Come to church this week.
0: Let's examine that one topic at a time. First, democracy. Vote for me and I'll make all your dreams come true. Then there's fathers. Let me teach you about tire tread separation. Then we'll play catch. Patriotism and the United States and faith <clears throat> um faith in in what it's not really
2: specific is it find yourself through faith come to church this week
0: nope not specific by design again this campaign ran during the cold war encouraging americans to see patriotism democracy parenting and religion as building blocks of our society this was not the only ad, not by far. A filmed ad keeps asking the question, why? It shows people walking in a park. Why? An old woman. Why? Kids playing. Why? A family at a dinner table. Why? The graphic and the voice at the end say, In a world looking for answers, maybe God is the place to start. God is hope. God is now. And it ends with, you guessed it, The Ad Council logo. This is the McGruff the Crime Dog people. Pro seatbelt, anti-drunk driving. And they advertise for people to turn to God. A a non-specific God, but God nonetheless. The Religion in American Life campaign ran at about the same time as spiritual mobilization disseminated its information. It all sounds kind of innocuous and innocent, doesn't it? As American as apple pie. Well, hold up. Ad Council Chairman Stuart Peabody said that
2: when you stop to figure it out, there is hardly any council campaign which doesn't make some contribution to the health of American business.
0: That may seem like a weird thing to say, but let's you and I think about those PSAs for a moment. That ad with the kid singing urged people to go to church to put America into your kids' hearts. During the Cold War, How does that benefit business? Well, if they are going to church and are good patriots, it keeps kids away from godless collectivist communism. Which is great for business because collectivism means that the government would control the means of production, restrictions, regulation. Collectivism means you're not relying on individuals to bargain for their wages, but groups come together to demand certain things for workers which all cuts at the bottom line for corporations. The campaign bonded church attendance with Americanism and capitalism. Without all the New Deal social gospel stuff. I don't know why we struggle to see regulated capitalism as an option, but we do. Not that big business is necessarily bad, just pointing out a reality. Now think about the crash test dummies. How are they good for big business? Well, it keeps insurance companies from having to pay out benefits. Does that mean it's bad for society to have seatbelt advertisements? No, of course not. Seatbelts save lives, but they also benefit insurance companies. Maybe you've noticed that a common theme with a lot of our stories this year has been big business. That's not by accident, nor are discussions of the ways they stand to lose from collectivization. That brings us to another big theme we've talked about at length this season. How do you fight collectivization? By focusing on the individual. Here
1: again is Wendy Melillo. What a number of ad council campaigns seem to focus on was much more the individual responsibility to do something about a large issue, you know, a societal problem, as as opposed to what can we all do together, right? In the ads, problems aren't solved by sweeping social
0: change, but by the actions of one person. Only you can prevent forest fires. Doesn't say anything about faulty electrical equipment that started massive forest fires in California last year, does it? It puts the onus on the individual. What about the famous ad where a Native American cries at the sight of litter? The problem is that you didn't pick up your trash. Not that companies who make the packaging go way overboard. It's not business that's the problem. It's that you're not doing your part. There's a big movement out there calling for manufacturers to make less packaging, especially since so much of what we take to our recycling centers is just put into landfills anyhow, now that China has stopped taking our recycling. It's not wrong to recycle, but wouldn't we be better off if there were less packaging to begin with? Okay, so let's take what we know about the ads, the individualism, promoting capitalism, and the American way— and apply it to the Religion in American Life campaign. We might be tempted to think that this campaign was a blip on the radar. Think again. The campaigns were handled by J. Walter Thompson, the largest advertising firm in the world. Maybe they don't sound like such a big deal. I mean, it's just ads, right? Well, the country was deeply saturated in them. In 1956 alone, the Religion in American Life campaign did 5,412 billboards, 9,857 posters in bus and train stops, and 59,590 ad cards inside buses and trains and streetcars. Local groups could put prayer cards on restaurant tables, do mailings, and use bumper stickers. A company that wrapped loaves of bread in Columbus, Ohio, and another in Wisconsin, put labels on their bread promoting the Religion in American Life campaign. 30 million loaves of bread urged people to go to church. Like the celebrations Francis Bellamy put together decades earlier to sell flags, Local chapters could acquire kits that did the heavy lifting for them. Kits included proclamations that could be signed by mayors, a prefab newspaper editorial about the proclamation, and more. Radio and TV stations were required to run public service announcements. So the Ad Council made some ready to go. The ads were everywhere, really everywhere. Buses, radio, television, in print, and in the public square. It's complicated, though, isn't it? I mean, as a Christian, I want people to hear about God. But are we okay with all of the trappings that came with the Ad Council? Pro-business leanings? Tying faith to the United States, which means that the actions of the U.S. then reflect back on religion? Does it matter just what an ad
1: says? Or should we also know where the ads come from? I think you have to start uh, in K-12 through 12 education. This has to start from the very beginning where people, um, our young people need to be taught that the messages that you are exposed to every day are not necessarily benign. Persuasive communication is very powerful and when I teach it, I talk about the continuum. Okay, on one end, you could have advocacy, which can be done for very, very good causes, right? And, and you need to understand what uh, an organization or a person is advocating for. But on the other end of that same continuum of persuasive communication is propaganda. And you have to be very, very careful because when it goes too far, now at what point does it become propaganda at what point does it become a problem particularly with some of the attacks that we've had against our democratic institutions right and it's not just the media although the media has certainly taken a number of hits but the judicial system right you could go down the line and so you have to understand the agenda what is the agenda behind the campaign? Well, well, in a 30-second ad, are you going to be able to get that? Particularly with an organization like the Ad Council that is very much behind the scenes. It puts up its little logo, Ad Council, but nobody really knows what that means. And so I think it's important for people to understand that these messages, even if the image is being promoted as selling good, Is it really selling good? I think that that is a legitimate question to ask. What we have to teach our youngsters in media literacy is healthy skepticism.
0: How did Christianity get tied to business concerns? Through marketing campaigns like those done by Fifield's Spiritual Mobilization, Abraham Veriti, and the Ad Council. We've been trained to connect Christianity and capitalism. Yes, massive marketing campaigns can urge us towards a saving faith in Christ, something I believe in, but they can also act as a distraction. Smoke and mirrors that keep us from regulating industries. If libertarian ideas get tied to Christianity, you weirdly end up in a world where Christians are fighting regulatory agencies that have nothing to do with the faith we're made to fight stuff that we perceive as bad for business, even if we could never back our stance up with the Bible. Many are backing libertarian ideas under the guise of standing up for Jesus. But are those the same things? We have to be aware of where our ads come from, the messages we hear, the things we equate. Otherwise, When the submarine of public opinion surfaces off the shore of our beliefs, we may not survive the fire. Special thanks to Wendy Melillo. I barely scratched the surface of her book, How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America. We had such a good conversation that I couldn't use it all. If you give money to support the show, you can listen to more of our interview. Details are at trucepodcast.com. I've also posted a YouTube video on our website from one of her lectures. And in the lecture, you can see some of the ads we discussed for yourself. As always, I'm indebted to Nick Steren, who helped me talk through this episode. And it's been a while since i thanked these guys, but Roy Browning of JMC Brands in Ohio built our awesome website. My friend Andy Huff, author of the Shepherd Suspense novel series, Designed the logo. Truce is listener-supported. On what other program would you hear a discussion of how the Ad Council shaped Christian America? These episodes take me a long time to research, edit, and post. Your financial help makes a huge difference. You can learn how to give at trucepodcast.com/donate. Special thanks to all the people who gave their voices to this episode, including Sharon Wilharm of the All God's Women podcast. J.D. Sutter, who is a voiceover artist. You can learn more about him at jdsutter.me. And Thompson George from the Mornings with Thompson podcast. I also had help from my friend Meg Glezner from the Letters from Home podcast. Finally, would you consider leaving a comment about the show on your podcasting app? It helps people learn more about the show. Please leave us five stars and tell the world about Truce. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with more. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce.